Good morning. Will you guys stand up with us? Welcome this morning.
good morning. Let's continue this morning. If you're in the back, I want to encourage you to come on in and join us. Find a seat. Uh, it's good to see faces this morning. We have some new lights up above you. I don't know if you noticed that yet or not, but I'm glad that we get to see your faces worshiping with us. That's encouraging to us up here. And so let's worship together. Let's celebrate our Savior, our risen Savior, and our Heavenly Father. Amen. Thank you. 
Father, this morning I pray that we would not settle for anything less than you, that we would not worship anything less than you, God, that, that great can only be defined by you. Everything else pales in comparison. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we love you, and we praise you truly for who you are. May you be elevated. May you be uh, increased this morning as we decrease, and we surrender and hear from you today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Welcome uh, to Cross Point. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. We're grateful that you're with us. If you do have a Bible with you, get to uh, Exodus 19 and 20. Uh, that's where we'll be this morning. And uh, now I can say that to you and you can actually see your Bible. This is a big blessing for us to be able to, um, I don't know if you've had that experience on a Sunday morning, but you're like, yeah, good luck with that. Thanks for telling me to do that. I can't see it. Um, so uh, hopefully you can see it now. And uh, just God's been so faithful to us over the four years of us being here, nearly four years God's been faithful to provide and through the generosity of his people and, and we're grateful to not only be debt free but to be able to do an upgrade like this and have some lighting in this room. So we're thankful. Since last fall we've been on a journey through uh, the story of the Bible and today we begin in Exodus 19 and to get us there I want us to watch this video to kind of lead us to where we've been up into where we are this morning. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up, and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. 
But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now as you turn the page... You suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry, and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great. But the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. So what were they saved for is the question there. What were the Israelites saved for? For the person here or watching online who confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior, what are we saved for? The Christian life, the Christian faith is much more than just being saved by God and then we wait around for heaven and twiddle our thumbs. It's much more than that. The Israelites were not delivered from slavery and set free in order to serve themselves. It wasn't like, okay, you're free from the Egyptians now, now go live and, uh, now, now go and, live and serve yourself. It wasn't that at all. Instead, it was God, their, their Savior, their Redeemer, their Deliverer who called them for His own and Him alone and God was setting them free in order to worship him. And so they're saved from the wrath of God. That We see that in the parting of the Red Sea and in complete and total victory over the Egyptians, over evil. We see them cross over on dry land. We see the Israelites cross over on dry land, walk through and come through the judgment waters. But now they're saved 
to a life they're called and commanded to live for God alone, the, the God who redeemed them, the God who saved them and brought them through. God is their redeemer, and so they're called to live for him. So what are the Israelites saved for? We see this answer in Exodus 19, verses uh, 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from, from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the the Lord is giving them this reminder of what he's done, a reminder of his faithfulness, his goodness, his power, his grace, that like an eagle, he came in and rescued them, took them to a new height, brought them to safety, carried them through the wilderness, has fed them. God has been so good to the Israelite people. It hasn't always been easy. It hasn't always been easy. You you would not describe their experience thus far as comfortable. But even in the discomfort, God has been present with them. And he's not only brought them to himself, but now he speaks these words of love over them, that you are my treasured possession. You are my people. And as my people, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The Lord is commanding his people, the ones he has saved, to live for him, to represent him to the nations and the people around them. And as a group of people, that they would be a holy nation. As God's people, their lives would look different than the lives of those who worship false gods and reject the God of the Bible. Their identity had been changed. Their identity had been transformed because God had saved and delivered. Their identity, their purpose in life has changed. It's no longer about them. It's all about God. It's all about God himself, the one who bore them up on eagles' wings, rescuing, redeeming. He is the one who saved them to something, a new life and a new mission. And this mission goes back to Genesis 12 when God told, the descendant, told their descendant Abraham that through this family all the nations would be blessed. That, that, uh, to see God's desire, to see people saved and enter into a relationship with him, that mission to reach people that began in Genesis 12 is only continuing here in Exodus 19. That through this nation they would be God's people to represent him to the world. And so they're given this charge to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, that because of being God's treasured possession, they have a new identity, a new mission. And so you can imagine the people are probably thinking, okay, so, so what does that look like? If we're called to represent you to the world, to the nations around, Lord, what, how are we supposed to do that? What does that look like? And so the Lord gives the people the law. He's going to give them commands of, okay, it, it, this is what it looks like to live for God. Live for the God who has saved you. In the last six weeks of this series, we're going to look at some of those commands, specifically this week and next week, looking at the Ten Commandments. And so the Lord gave the people the law. He's going to give them commands of what it looks like. And in our culture sometimes, there is this, this impression, this false belief that we can follow, we can trust in Jesus, we can be saved, but then really not see our lives radically changed and transformed by the grace and truth of God. 
that we can have Jesus as a Savior of our hearts, but while we can remain Lord and leader of our own hearts. But scripturally, in, in, in the Bible, you just don't see that. You can't have one without the other. If He's Savior, then He's Lord. If He's Lord, then He's Savior. So it's not like, you know, I really believe and I really trust in Jesus, but when it comes to this dating relationship, when it comes to how I handle my money, when it comes to how I, what I do in private, how I love my spouse, uh, how I treat those who mistreat me, how I handle bitterness in my life, when it comes to those things, uh, I'll, I'll determine what I'm going to do about those things. I mean, yeah, the Lord saved me, but I'll, I'll determine what I do about those things. You just don't see that disconnect in Scripture. Our hearts are prone to justify and excuse sin, right? Mine is justify disobedience. We are prone to say to ourselves, boy, I'm really seeking to obey over here. Doesn't that excuse what I'm doing over here? And we see it kind of as this, this like great scale, like a big weight scale. We're kind of tipping it in our favor because we're really obeying over here, but we're really not over here. Someone has said this. I can't remember who said it, but, but radical obedience in one area doesn't excuse radical disobedience in another area. And sometimes we justify our sin in that way. What I love about this three-year chronological journey is that it, it helps us see really big picture overarching themes in Scripture. One of those is it stands out to me here in the book of Exodus. God delivers, God redeems, God saves the people, and then he gives them the commands to live by. It's not the other way around. Where God gives them the commands to live by, and then based upon their level of obedience, then he determines whether or not he's going to bestow upon them his grace. We can't miss this because too often in Christianity, since the book of Acts, we get this turned around. We get this turned around. We want to switch this, and we are prone to say, well, you start to obey God. You, you, you work really, really hard at this. You get your act cleaned up, and then God will love and accept you. That's not the gospel. That's not God's grace. If we can obtain our own salvation, if we can find our own way to heaven, then why did Jesus die? He didn't have to die. Why did he die if we, if we think that we can obey well enough for God to say, wow, look at that obedience. Come on, let's go. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So it's by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. If salvation is based upon how good we can obey, Paul points out that in our pride and in our, in our sin, we'd all say, boy, I'm better than you are. Have you seen how well I obey? Have you seen how awesome I am? That's what we'd be prone to do if it was based on works. But knowing we're saved by the grace of God, then, then that invites in us humility. It invites in us a dependence upon God, a, a worship of God. Grace, deliverance, redemption, salvation, all of that preceded the law. So it wasn't obey me and then I'll set you free. We don't see God coming to the Israelites when they're enslaved in Egypt saying, here's my commands. If you begin to turn your life around, then I will deliver you. That's not how it goes down. It's I will deliver you and then I'm going to call you to live for me. My grace, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to initiate this relationship. I'm going to bestow upon you my, my amazing unconditional grace. And I'm going to save you, redeem you, and then I'm going to call you to live for me and me alone. 
God worked through his, Moses, worked through his servant Moses and the ten plagues that we looked at and, and all of that, and God sets his people free. So the reality of the story is this. God said, I will set you free, and as a result, I want you to obey me. I, I, I'm, I, I'm saving you not just from something, but to something, to a new life and a new mission. You're my treasured possession. So out of that identity, you live a new life. So and, and when we look at the Ten Commandments this week and next, they not only give us an idea of how to live for God, but they also give us a picture of our God, His nature and character. Anytime we open up our Bibles, we have this opportunity to learn about God, the God we sing to, the God we give to in offerings, the God we pray to, the God we gather around and worship. And so in the Ten Commandments, we learn about our God. And one of the things, one of the big, one of the big things we'll see in the Ten Commandments is that God is holy. We'll see His holiness on display. Remember, these are not ten suggestions from God, but they're ten commandments. He's called the Israelites to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And these are practical ways that we can pursue that holiness. We'll look at the first four today, the last six next week. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I love this because, again, before he's given them a command, he's reminded them of who he is. And what he's done. He is the Lord their God. He is the one who has loved them so much that he brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He loves these people. His love for them does not diminish his holiness. It does not diminish the commands that he's going to give them, nor do, do, do these commands diminish his love. But instead, the, these commands, they remind us, he, he's reminding here uh, of his love and faithfulness to his people before he's even given them a command. Because out of that identity of, 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 of being a, a treasured possession, they're going to obey. Out of that identity, they must not forget that it starts there. It starts with receiving grace, and then it leads to obedience and not the other way around. When a person comes to faith in Christ, their first step is surrender. It's to uh, agree with God, to no longer disagree with Him, but it's to agree with Him, to repent to believe on Jesus as Lord and Savior. And at that point, our identity is now not in our past, not in our sin, what we've always been, but rather our identity is now in a new creation in Christ. We've been made new. Our hearts are now a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. We've crossed over from death to life. We've crossed through those waters. And now we have this new inward identity. It flows out of, an out, out of a outward, it flows into an outward activity. It's, it stands out in this world. It, it reflects the God that has saved us to the world around us. Said another way, out of identity flows our activity. So our, our identity in Christ flows out to our activity for Christ. For example, I'm, I'm a husband to my wife, Heather, now for uh, 20 years in June. In June. That's a part of, been a part of my identity for now for uh, 20 years. So out of that identity flows my activity. My activity to try to, and I don't always get this right. I didn't get it right this last week, but my activity to try to put her before myself, to love her sacrificially, to serve her, to get to know her, to pray for her, to listen to her. My way of life looks different because I, my identity as a husband. Same goes for my identity as a father. 
Out of that role as a dad flows my, my activity, or at least it should. It should impact how I pray for my kids, how I pray with my kids, how I help manage our schedule so that we're not always scattered and going everywhere, but we've got some time at home. It should manage how I pursue them in conversation, how I engage in them in relationship. Out of my identity flows our activity. So if you claim to know God, if you're claiming to follow Him, if that's your identity, it will change what you do. It will change what you believe. It will change what you think. It will change what you want. So who am I? Well, I'm a husband. So I want to honor my wife. I want to love my wife well, among other things. Who am I? Well, I'm a a dad. So I want to lead my children to Jesus through my words and through my way of life. And who am I? Well, first and foremost, I'm a Christ follower. So I want to honor God. I want to serve Him. I want to be used by Him. I want to glorify Him. I want to represent Him well in every aspect of my life, not just in some. God gives the people the law, but first He reminds them of His love for them and all that He's done for them. So in their pursuit of holiness and obedience, that they would not forget who they are, that they wouldn't somehow flip that to longer, the longer they pursue God, the longer they obey God, that they would think that that obedience leads to meriting God's love. But they would know no, it begins with being his treasured possession. It begins with an identity that then flows out to a different activity. Verse 3 begins the Ten Commandments, and God is going to command the people to place him first in their lives. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So out of all that God has done, all that he is, it makes sense that God would say, you shall have no other gods before me. In Genesis 1 and 2, there was a perfect harmony between humans and God. There was no distractions. There was a sin had not entered the world, so the human heart had not gotten stained by sin. And so, as a result, there was no rival. There was no compare. There was nothing to be distracted by. But when sin entered the world, with it came idolatry. This temptation to worship something or someone other than God, the human heart apart from Christ is bent toward sin. It's desperately wicked. So out of that sinful heart comes the temptation to place things before our God, to turn our focus away from God and fix our eyes upon things. Distracted driving is an issue, right? A lot of things can distract us. Uh, texting, children in the back seat, fighting, doing random things, um, trying to eat and drink and do all these things all at the same time while driving. Our own minds can, can distract us. I don't know if you've had this experience, but you're driving home and you're like, I have no idea what happened the last few miles. But um, I was thinking about something, not about driving. That's why I guess the statistically accidents happen close to home. But, but we can be distracted. We can just be distracted easily. When we try to multitask, it doesn't go well. Everything we do in the car should be in light of the overall goal to drive, to accomplish that role. When God calls us to have no other gods before him, it means that everything else we do in this life is in light of that overall goal to worship Him, to glorify Him, to honor Him. We don't serve multiple gods. We serve one true God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a core belief as a Christian. 
that we don't worship multiple gods. We worship the one true God, the God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one who has no rival and no comparer, no equal, who stands alone in all his glory and majesty that belong to him. As Christ followers, we live in light of an overall and constant awareness that our entire lives are to glorify him, to worship him. That's, that's the thing that, that overrides everything else we do in this life. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we see here a, a, a handful of things about who our God is. One is that our God is a God of love. He's a God of faithful love toward those who love and obey Him. He's a God who does not forsake those who are in a covenant relationship with Him, who place their faith and trust in Jesus, following Him as Lord. We also see that our God is a jealous God. Later in Exodus 34, it says this, verse 14, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So what does it mean to say that our God is a jealous God? Well, it doesn't mean that He is jealous of what other people have. Like, oh, I wish I was stronger like so-and-so. It's not that. All right? it, because our God lacks for nothing. He, he is not insufficient, incomplete. He's not in need. It's so foreign to us, right? It's so foreign to our experience because we are not all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, that we are in need. We are incomplete. As I get older and I play the game of basketball, right, I recognize my insufficiency. Okay? My mind is still in its 20s. And it says, you can get that steel. You can get that. My body decides to buffer for a minute before it goes there. Right? It goes, no, no, you can't get that steel. So don't even try because you're going to pull something and your goal is to walk away injury-free. All right? that, as you get older, that's my goal in playing sports, injury-free. I recognize my incompleteness, my insufficiency. We're in need. We lack. But God doesn't. God is not jealous of someone else's power or might. But God is jealous for our affections. He is jealous for our time. He is jealous for our focus. He is jealous for our minds. The other day, Heather and I were having this conversation with one of our kids after being gone um, pretty much all, all day Saturday. And we were telling them, listen, we are jealous for your time. Okay, We love that you want to be with your friends. We love that you want to be active. You want to be involved. But listen, beyond all of that, we really like to be with you. Like, we're your mom and dad. We, we love to be with you. We love to spend time with you. We love to engage in conversations. We love to listen to you. We love to ask questions and have you talk to us. And we love to have conversations with our kids and be with them. We are jealous for your time. And what's that jealousy born out of? It's a steadfast love for them. It's a steadfast love for them. It's not... Hey, we're fun haters, so don't do that. No, it's a steadfast love for them. We want to be with you. I mean, sometimes every parent is a fun hater, but, but not in that moment. Okay? But when Christ followers serve and worship idols rather than God, when, when our focus and our minds 
when the time on our calendars, when the money in our accounts, when the words in our mouth, the view of our eyes, when those things are on lesser things, then our God grows jealous. He's a jealous God. The commandments begin with a call to worship our God alone first and foremost. And then what, what we see is kind of God mapping out for us what that practically looks like. Because our God deserves honor in all that we do, not just on Sunday mornings, not just when we're with other Christians, not just when we're in public, but in all that we do. In verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in, in vain, for the Lord will not hold, guiltless, hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So what does this mean? What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? Well, said another way, it would be when we empty the, the name of God. When we use the, the words of Jesus and Jesus Christ and God, when we empty them of their significance and their meaning, when, when we say such words that, that speak of our God, that, that are to speak of our God, but when we use them in flippant, casual when we swear in cheap and insignificant ways. Because these words, they describe the Lord Al Almighty. They, they describe His weightiness. And when we just kind of toss them around in crass and flippant ways, then, we're, then we've emptied them of their meaning. So when we say OMG, when we say Jesus Christ, and that doesn't refer to the one who hung on the cross and rose again on the third day, but it's just kind of this flippant... Uh, we got upset about something? We've emptied them of their significance, of their weightiness. We've, we've made them just kind of be these light and momentary words instead of the weightiness of the one who they describe. So I don't care if it's in private conversation. I don't care if it's with these old group of friends you have. I don't care if it's on social media. The place you work, the place you hang out with. When we take the Lord's name in vain, when we make the word just simply another word instead of a word that represents our God. Taking the Lord's name in vain is far more than just not using it as a cuss word, though. We also take the Lord's name in vain when we, when we remove the significance of the words, not just when we speak flippantly of them, but when we speak untruthfully of our God. When we make... Um, accusations about who our God is, but those may or may not be based on Scripture. When we don't really know if they're anchored in Scripture, but we say we speak of our God, but we're taking the Lord's name in vain then when we're not really describing Him well according to the Bible. We also take the Lord's name in vain when we, on one hand, we say, yeah, Jesus is, has saved me. That's my public identity as a Christ follower. But then we turn around and, and in, in a way we, we misrepresent Him the way that we live our lives don't reflect Him at all. So would there be evidence at your workplace, among your teammates, among your friends at school, among those old friends, would there be evidence that would convict you of being a Christ follower? Or would they say, really? They're, they're a Christian, huh? Huh, okay. That's not really what I thought a Christian did or acted like. Or would there be, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I, I see it. I see it in their way of life. I see it in how they love people. I see it in, in how they go about their day. See, when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray, He began with what? Hallowed be your name. Meaning the name of God is holy because God is holy. Our God is set apart. So the words we choose to say in our way of life 
are to reflect the holiness of our God. So we can't name the name of Jesus on one hand and then on the other hand deliberately disobey Him and misrepresent Him. God called the Israelites to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a group of people who would represent Him to the world. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, that we carry His good news to the world around us. And so that impacts how we speak. It impacts the words we choose and how we turn from hypocrisy and two-faced living, how we speak reverently of our God, understanding the weight of His glory and His, His goodness, His character, the significance of Him in our lives. Our words should reflect our identity in Christ. Jesus said this in Luke 6.45, that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So don't just see this command as something in the negative, but see it in the positive, that the more we delight in God, the more we know God, the more we love God, the more we get to know God through His Word, talk to Him in prayer, the more the Lord is ruler of our hearts, the more our mouth will overflow with that reality, will overflow with that identity that we have in Christ. God moves on to the next command in verse 8. Remember, all of these are intended to bring blessing to our lives, and, but, but they also show us who our God is, how to reflect Him to the world, Verse 8, remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, the Sabbath is, is one command here that's not necessarily given as a command in the New Testament. And so we don't obey this command as law. If you worked around your house yesterday on a Saturday, it doesn't necessarily mean that you sinned, okay? Students, you can't use this as an excuse of, sorry, I'm Sabbathing, it's Saturday, I can't clean my room. It's not, that's not it. That's sinning in another way. We'll get to that commandment next week, all right? But we're not under the law of Moses. And here in what's given to the Israelites, and we might say, well, then, then I can have idols. Then I can take the Lord's name in vain. Then why are we even looking at the Ten Commandments? Because all of those are affirmed in the New Testament. They're all talked about in the New Testament, but the Sabbath is a unique one. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, and Romans 14, 5, make it clear that for the Christian, the Sabbath keeping is a matter of freedom, not a command from God. It's not a religious checklist or a law that we obey. So the Sabbath day in Exodus here refers to Saturday. But since the resurrection of Jesus, the Lord's day is always, since the resurrection happened on Sunday, the Lord's day has always been on Sunday for the New Testament Christian as the day to meet together and set aside for the Lord, set aside as holy. You see in Acts 2, though, that they, they met daily together. So it's not just about a Sunday thing, but it's a way of life. All right, you also see in Colossians 3.23 that all that we do is to be worship of God, not just when we sing and gather together. So the Sabbath is not, this is the only day I worship God, but this is the only day I'm with other believers. So then what do we do with the Sabbath? Do we just ignore it? Not at all. There are principles here in Exodus 20 that we would be wise to take note of, to build into our lives, to build into a rhythm that's been around since Genesis. Since Genesis, before the law is given to the Israelites, we see this pattern of working six days and resting on the seventh. 
We get that model from Creator God who rested on the seventh day. And it wasn't like He was tired. It wasn't like He was tired. He's God. He never grows tired. He's not lacking. And yet, even so, He rested. So when we set aside a day of our weeks to honor the Lord and rest, we imitate our Lord. When we choose to set aside a day of a day of the week from work, we are acknowledging that we're not God, that we are not sovereign, and only God is. It acknowledges that we trust in God and God's rhythm and God's timing, God's order. It acknowledges that we need God, that we're dependent upon God. I struggle with, with finding this rhythm in my life. I struggle with taking a day off, and that's not, that's not this badge of honor, all right? I, I try to take Fridays off, and of all, play, and of all weeks... Okay, let me tell you something ironic. Of all weeks, I try to take Friday off, but no, on this past Friday, I'm trying to work on a message about the Sabbath. Okay, that's irony in its finest. Beautiful. Thanks, Holy Spirit. So pray for me that I might grow in this because I will not last in ministry until I honor the Sabbath. Plain and simple. So pray for me. Hold me accountable. I'll hold you accountable too, but just encourage me in that. I struggle with this. When we ignore the six, and i got to preach on it too, but when we ignore the six days on and one day off, we're more or less placing ourselves up greater than God, as if He can get more done through us in seven days than He could in creating the universe in six. What He needs for us is to rest in Him, to acknowledge that He's enough, that our trust is in Him and His ways, that He's the one at work. Listen, we've been created to work, okay? The book of Proverbs talks all about that to reject laziness, uh, don't be like the sluggard, be like the ant, all these kinds of things. Work has been around since Genesis, but so is rest. But so is rest. We've been designed to rest. Rest from working, creating, striving, laboring. See, the Pharisees, though, they saw the Sabbath as this law, that heaven forbid you do anything on the seventh day of the week. Jesus said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So Sabbath is a gift to man. It's this blessing from the Lord. Someone has said, if you work with your hands all week, then you Sabbath with your mind. You rest with your mind. Or if you work with your mind all week, then you Sabbath with your, with your hands. It's always resonated with me. But when we rest from work, we are also setting aside the idol of work right? No other gods before our God. Well, here's a practical way that we intentionally go after that idol. We set it aside for a day and we trust in the Lord on that day. We're turning from that idol and say, work can wait. And we focus on the Lord. Maybe we pray more that day. Maybe we get outside in the Lord's creation more. Maybe we get together with God's people on that day. Maybe we read more. We're more into the Word that day than other days. But one day, we're, we're just more aware of the Lord than the other six days of the week. One day where we set it aside as holy, where we're intentional about it. You schedule everything else in your life, don't you? Everything else you schedule. Why do we not schedule rest in the Lord in a, in a day to set aside as holy? Ultimately, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. In Christ, we have continual rest. We have this rest in what He's already done through the cross and the resurrection, and not in trying to achieve our own salvation, find and merit God's love. 
and we admit to that rest. We acknowledge that rest when we rest one out of every seven. Our God is a good Father who cares for His children. His commands for our lives are intended to bring blessing, not burden. Some of us view God as this cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want His people to be happy. And sadly, some Christians reflect that, right? You would think that they got saved and walked into prison or something. Instead, you got saved, you're set free from the prison is what I see in Scripture. So these commands, they bring life. They not only help us learn about our God, they help us to know what it looks like to live for God. They also bring blessing into our lives. These are intended to bring life. And so God has called the Israelites out of slavery. The last thing he would do is send them back into slavery. His desire is for freedom for them. So these commands help them avoid walking back into slavery, whether that be slavery of idolatry, slavery of hypocrisy, slavery of, of, of crass and careless words in a heart that isn't captivated by, by Christ, slavery from work. Our God is a good Father, a perfect Heavenly Father who has steadfast love for His children. And as His children, we trust in His words, we trust in His ways. Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law and the commands and expectations of God perfectly. And so our trust is not in our ability to obey but our trust is, is in the one who got it perfectly right and then who died for us, laid down his life for us. The one who's transforming us, making us more like, more like him. We will not reach perfection this side of heaven, but that is not an excuse to not grow in holiness, grow in Christ-likeness, grow to be more like Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, change us. Remove the idols. Fix my eyes on you. Transform my heart. Change my heart so the words that would overflow would reflect your weightiness and your significance. They'd reflect your holiness. Change my heart where work isn't an idol, but where I serve and worship you and you alone. As the worship team comes back up, um, I would love for us just to have some quiet time to pray. A couple minutes, responding as the Spirit leads you. Talk to your Father in heaven. And then we will stand and sing and take our offering and we will worship God in that way. But, but let's just be quiet before the Lord. Let's pray, and then we'll stand up and sing.
Your love never fails. 
Father, we're grateful for your word that it sets us free, that it, it shows us who you are, that it, intend, it, it leads to life, it leads to blessing, God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you that you're on your throne. And Father, I pray that this week we would represent you well, not out of obligation, but because we are your treasured possession, because we are the focus of your steadfast love. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection that it changes everything. May we be ambassadors for you this week in the words we say and how we work and how we rest and how we serve you and, and, and live in light of an overall desire to worship you and to love you supremely above all else. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. God bless you.